Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Are you ready to lose weight the easy way? Get Nutrisystem, the proven plan that's worked for millions, and it will work for you, too. You get your breakfasts, lunches, dinners, and snacks delivered right to your door. Delicious foods that are ready in minutes, now featuring hearty inspirations meals that control hunger for up to five hours, high in protein, and bigger than ever. Exactly what you need to feel full, satisfied, and energized as the weight comes off. The secret is the Breakthrough science of Smart Adapt, personalized to your metabolism and created to help you break through plateaus. Get your plan for as little as $10 a day. Order Nutrisystem today and start losing weight right away. Millions of people have lost weight on Nutrisystem. You can too. Go to Nutrisystem.com slash new right now and get a special offer. Just go to Nutrisystem.com slash new to get started. Expect to lose an average one to two pounds a week. Offer restrictions apply. See website for details. Welcome to 1968. Ryan, how's it going? Terrific. It's another brilliant year from the Beatles and Rolling Stones. And uh, I think this podcast, much like the White Album, is going to be three hours long. (laughs) Yeah, Um, we'll see. We'll see if I can get my hands on the on the editing floor to to refine that. We are I, I would say would you say that we are now into like the the full on prime of both bands. I think that like people could say that about between the buttons and like the singles they're putting out on aftermath and stuff. You loved Satanic Majesties more than most people, and even if people love it more now than they did before. But this feels like these are like quintessential albums by both bands at the same time, right? They're definitely quintessential. Um, I think there's no question that Beggar's Banquet pretty pretty quickly when it came out was was immediately like this is hailed as one of the best Rolling Stones albums. So we, we are in the thick of the prime for sure. Although um, if I, I don't know how quickly I want to put my contrarian hat on. Um, <laughs> you go already. You go. I, I kind of stated this on the last podcast and I don't know if this is true. I don't even know if this is true for myself. And th- this, I want to set the tone for this podcast and that much I have so many conflicting feelings about the white album and, and I've been like grappling with them this, this whole uh, week. And, and so we'll get into all of those things, but there could be an argument to be made that the Beatles are on the downward slope already. Yeah. You said, you said last week for Sergeant Peppers that this is the beginning of the end, which is something I actually disagree with. Like I think they made the thing they wanted to make and um, most people love it. I think if those people scrutinize it a little more, they can find um, some of the stuff we talked about in there to like, to, to mark a little bit against it, against it being like some kind of perfect grand thing. This one actually is the beginning of the end, like in, in documented ways and in um, just listening to the album, like what there's, there's a lot happening. Well, I think if 
Sergeant Peppers was the beginning of the end. I don't think it was, a, I meant, I didn't want to mean that as a knock on that album, more just that the cracks, I thought, the cracks that show in the White Album were, there were the seeds of those cracks in Sergeant Peppers. Something something that I think is a funny flip, like that I, I realized listening this week is a, a, a major recurring theme if you listen to this stuff year by year, the way we are, is that the Beatles have these like, your, your beautiful analogy you did on the Revolver episode where it's like this perfect toy that's in its box that is pristine and fully, perfectly curated piece of collection of music by this band. The Beatles have a lot of those, you know, like it's like each moment and a lot of the, and the albums aren't varying from continent to continent as much. And there's, it just feels like a, a, a collection of like Criterion Collection DVDs on your on your shelf or something like that. And the Rolling Stones have these kind of like a little bit of a mess of albums that have these amazing songs that jump out at you on on almost all of them, but they're kind of like you can't speak about the package as well. And this to me feels like the year where that that flips. Like White Album has these, why but White Album has some insanely good songs, tons of them, but it's literally tucked within thirty of them. And I am. It's insane that there's thirty songs on this album. Like, I don't think I ever really sat down and counted them. And when I, I just, there's 30 songs. An absolutely hilarious thing I read, and I can't remember the title. Oh yeah, Not Guilty, it's in front of me. Harrison had a song called Not Guilty that was left off the album, even though they recorded 102 takes of it. And it's like, (laughs) you you made a 30 song album with a song that literally just says the, the words, the number nine over and over again. And like... And you and you cut this song that you recorded 102 takes of like what? How does that happen? There's so many head scratching. I, I think this is why the best the best word to describe the White Album is is a sort of infamy, and in its confusion and its strange labyrinth, it has lived on in the collective memory in a way even more so than I think Sergeant Pepper's. I think when Sgt. Pepper's came out, it was probably more popular than the White Album was right away, maybe. But I think it's lived on because there's just so much of this album and there's so many confounding things like that. There's this these beautiful outbursts of just amazing songwriting and craftsmanship right next to things that seem like they were recorded just in a off-the-cuff nothing. And when you realize that there was all these other songs and takes of things that were cut, and I actually spent a decent amount of time this week with the the expanded version of this album, listening to some of the demos, it's Jesus. really confusing. I want to bring someone into this conversation that hasn't really been um, talked about much on this podcast, and it's George Martin. After listening to this album a bunch and listening to some of these demos, I lay some of the blame for... The failures of this album, I I, I want to pinpoint on George Martin and some of the decisions that he made as far as how he produced some of these songs, which songs got chosen to be on the album, and some of the, the production decisions that were made. So apparently, apparently George Martin left on vacation mid-recording, and I think probably a little bit of like a fuck this, these people are fighting. I don't I don't need this. But check check my resume. I'm good. This album feels like listening to your parents get divorced. 
<laughs> I mean, it's not, that's not like an entirely incorrect way to analogize it. Cause it, it really is essentially the world's favorite band kind of getting divorced. And, and apparently like uh, Harrison wanted it to be winnowed down to something more coherent and, and a single album. Um, Ringo wanted to make it two separate albums and it was McCartney and Lennon who said, no, we're putting all these songs on here because I'm not here. I gotta say like beggars banquet, let it bleed era rolling stones is about near some of my favorite stuff. I'll, I'll have my stuff to, to, to toss at you with it, but I'm going to give my explanation of the white album first. So there is something cool about, about, not giving a fuck in my opinion, like we're just doing what the fuck we want and that's it. And like the, the previous album they did, Sgt. Peppers is kind of the ultimate like theater nerd. Every single thing is buttoned up and like every flourish you can put on something is there. It's, it's, a, it's a big grand presentation. There's a whole lot of trying. There's a whole lot of like, check out this big thing we're, we're crafting for you. And the White Album is literally a self-titled album with a white cover with just like the band's name embossed on it. That's it. And literally every single thing thrown at the wall, a lot of it good, some of it bad. I think the band knows that some of it's good and some of it's bad, but it's like, don't give a fuck. We're the Beatles and we're seven years into this career and, and or however many years and we're throwing it at the wall. So take it in, do what you want to do with it. And I approach it accordingly. You know, it's it's bonkers. It's like certain times it's like, oh, I don't need this song right now. But man, like it's possible that taking that approach is what allows you to unlock stuff like happiness as a warm gun and everything like that. So that's where I stand on it. I mean, I think every, everything you just said is true. But why, why does it have to be everything in the kitchen sink? why couldn't they have just taken more time with it and refine this stuff? And the thing that's the most frustrating about this album, there is four sides, right? There's two albums with two sides each, and there's not a single side that doesn't have some egregious <laughs> nonsense on it. They could have had one side that was like, this is all great classic Beatles stuff. And so I agree with you that there's something to be said for just going three sheets to the wind. And the, the Beatles have been accused, I think, prior to this of being too nice and neat and perfectly produced and, and perfect, pitch perfect in every single thing. But <laughs> listening back to the last episode, when you so brazenly accused me of liking music that many other people find <laughs> horrible or annoying... I, I agree that I, I'm not a but I I'm the type of person I love really raw music. I like demos. I like things that get to the really the base level of like a feeling and emotion and songwriting. And I think that's what they were trying to do with this, some of this stuff. And it's just a swing and a miss. And I feel like if they had taken that approach two or three years earlier, it would have been amazing. It would have been like the best album of all time. But they are so disjointed as a unit that it just doesn't it just doesn't coalesce yeah to me it's not a swing and a miss to me there's swings and misses on it but yes. it's like uh this is what as you say like it's disjointed for sure like like there's a cohesion to rubber soul and revolver that is has a lot to do with why those ones have like continually become more beloved and and it's this collaboration and this sort of unifying vision i mean this is 
This is them going in their own directions, all of them, and literally fracturing as a band and arguing and everything and recording alone and all of that. You get to see the like absolutely precious, adorable Paul McCartney songs next to completely nutty John Lennon screaming songs. And it's just them unchecked really on this album. And and you're going to get some really, really, really good stuff out of that, but you're also going to get a little like some whiplash in, in a lot of directions on it. I mean, I totally agree. And I don't, I, I, I withdraw my assertion that the album as a whole is a swinger miss. There are moments, there are songs on this album that are, you can't use another word other than transcendent. And that's why I've just been feeling like I've been going through such a, a range of emotions with this album that I have not experienced so far as we've undertaken this project where I've, I've been managed to stay relatively attached, even though I love a lot of this music and, and something about spending a lot of time with this album and, and not just casting off some of this stuff. I've, I've been feeling angry. I've been feeling sad. I've been feeling elated, just all of these things at once. And I don't, something about reading George Harrison, bringing Eric Clapton in to play on why while my guitar gently weaves just made me so mad. Still my guitar Dude, you can't do this to us. We're the Beatles. <laughs> Eric Clapton doesn't even believe in coronavirus. Really? <laughs> yeah, no, him and Van Morrison put out a... Uh, no. Him and Van Morrison put out a COVID is fake... Um, tune together out it's just a song not a full album should we cut that song in here it would be the first time i've heard it it. do you want to be a free man do you want to be a slave Uh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah no that's funny yeah it's true i really i really did have like a we i'm i'm gonna like plead ignorance here and be honest and that i never realized that eric clapton play was was on that song and and i also did not know that well that savory truffle is apparently completely based off of eric clapton's candy addiction <laughs> is what, what i read like savory that savory truffle is such is the worst title and that only makes it worse that song yeah it, if <laughs> there's a lot of these songs you're like well maybe if this has some kind of deeper meaning and it's like Who, no this is just some cast off bullshit about candy which one of those two took the other one's wife uh well I, I know that something and Layla are about that's Patty all I know Harrison. too but I don't I don't know I who... think Eric Clapton took George Harrison's wife but I could I, I could be wrong I I did not do any research on that sort of drama and honestly I don't even care about her I only care about George Harrison stabbing the rest of the Beatles in the back but I, honestly I can't even be mad at him because it feels like Paul McCartney has been shanking people left and right on this album. Tell me more. Just there's so many songs on here that are just Paul, like I'm going to go off by myself with an acoustic guitar. And then George Martin, you know, throws some orchestral stuff on top of it or like a piano line. And well, if George felt empowered to go have Eric Clapton come in and play on a Beatles song, I I feel like it's because Paul set this tone of just like, well, these are my songs. That's how I want to sound. I don't care what you guys think. Yeah, but all right, so here's here's a, a, an argument against that. This is the like, all the sort of like 
parodies and stories you hear about like Beatles in India with the Maharishi transcendental medica- meditation mm-hmm. and all of that. This is the, this is the project that is yielded by that trip. And so they go like the LSD from the previous year is gone. There's some weed and stuff like that, but like generally this more simple situation. And apparently like all the writing that was done in that space was an acoustic guitar and like people coming and checking in on each other. And so I think that what happened is like, you know, it's not mine to like assert this, but Paul McCartney wrote those acoustic guitar songs and recorded those acoustic guitar songs. John Lennon wrote those acoustic guitar songs as the seeds for stuff he was going to come back and go get wild with. When I get to the bottom, I go back to the top of the slide. Where I stop and I turn and I go for a ride. Till I get to the bottom and I see you again. I want to toss this prompt at you. First, I want your three most hated songs on the White Album. I did craft a 10-song version of the White Album. I did, too. Hell yeah, that is awesome. Okay, when you were saying earlier, you're like, there's like 13 good songs on here. It's like, yeah, I put this album, I re-put it together, re-sequenced, as our uh, good friend Elizabeth said in the last episode, and I put together a 12-song version of the White Album. Awesome. Nice. Well, I, I think I said 13 because I cut like pretty easily to 13 and then I had to make three hard decisions and I, I cut it to 10 just to get it to where Baker's Banquet was. But, oh, that's um, smart. but I feel like you could go anywhere from 10 to 15, depending on how many precious Paul McCartney songs you're going to allow yourself. It's true. It's true. And I think, and I know a thing that we would share is that who wants, who wants an, an album of tens, like, earworm singles you don't like certain stuff certain stuff plays a like if it's the white album i am having helter skelter on it like it's gonna be on it yeah of course it's 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 the it's in the dna of the white album Let's save our resequenced albums for later. All right. Well, and, I'm gonna, and let, I want to hear your I want to hear your bottom three songs. I'm gonna do this pretty quickly so I don't like spend too much time. But I'm, yeah. I'm tossing Revolution Nine. Don't need it. Tossing Savory Truffle, and I'm tossing Piggies. That's pretty unassailable. Um, all right. So that's that's your three worst songs. I would say I would agree with those. I don't really. Um, there's a lot of this album that's both that I'm like, I can't decide if I love or hate this song. So I'm curious, you have a song or two that's like, you vacillate between of like, this song's awful or like, I kind of like this song. Like when I say Helter Skelter is part of the DNA of this album, I weirdly have to like admit to the fact that like Obla Di Obla Da also is in its way I'm I, that's like, exactly kill me, the song. Kill me before I have to listen to Obla Di Obla Da again. Like it's like, but then at the same time, like it. it's good. It's great. And 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 Do I know, you know he says like, bra. That's like, what he's saying. B R A H. Life goes on, bra. listening to it and i was singing it the other day because i had a lot of these songs i listened to them i want to like play them on acoustic guitar and my wife was going are you saying bruh and i was like i am saying bruh what's it to you bruh 
<laughs> I was like, man, McCartney is really ahead of his time. He is. Yeah. And, and similarly, although I have less care for like the continuing score story of bungalow bill. Um, I put but, that in that category for sure. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go, I'm going to go rapid fire with my 10 songs. I want to make sure that we don't like, like last year, I think it made sense to spend a ton of time on Sergeant Peppers and then talk like in our like sort of discovery way or my discovery way yeah. about, about satanic majesties. But on this one, like, I don't want to give short shrift to beggars banquet, but here's my, here's my 10 um, okay. Beatles, Beatles ones I came up with back in the USSR while my guitar gently weeps uh, cheers, Eric Clapton. Happiness is a warm gun, Blackbird, Rocky Raccoon, Julia, Sexy Sadie, Helter Skelter, Revolution, and Cry Baby Cry. See, don't you just, this is the, all right, I'm going to give you my, this is my resequenced White Album, which is, has some overlap, but also is, is different. Um, and this is the specific order that I would put them in if I was mastering them. So back in the USSR, which I think we obviously both agree, you have to kick this album off with that song. Back in the USSR, happiness is a warm gun. I will. I'm so tired. Hey Jude, that's right. I'm including oh, <laughs> Hey man. Jude on this. Don't pass me by, which uh, may also be a controversial choice, but I'm gonna go on record here. The best Ringo song in the whole Beatles catalog. Cool. I like it. Love, I do. I it. do. I do love that when we were striking the three worst songs, no Ringo to be found. Good. No, good I, 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 you won't hear me slander. Don't pass me by. I actually really love that song. And I think uh, from reading about it, it, it's actually the first song that Ringo himself actually wrote. Don't pass me by. Don't make me cry. Don't make me blue. Skelter, your blues, which I'm surprised is not on yours, Blackbird, Crybaby Cry, Revolution, and then I'd end with Mother Nature's Son. I like Mother Nature's Son too. Your blues was on my like expanded 13 or whatever. It's awesome. I love, I Good love feel. Your blues. your blues, your blues is is them doing a, like a lot of what the Rolling Stones pull off, like in a lot of ways. Like this just feels good, but that's just the best version of John to me. He's just really like opening his shirt and like opening his chest. I mean, I know there's there's like a tongue in cheek aspect to that song, but I love his singing. I love his guitar playing on that song. The only thing that I don't love about it is at the end of the song it cuts to a different take you notice this not consciously. go back and I, I didn't realize this until this week every everybody who's listening to this go back and listen to your blues um and right around the three minute mark there is a hard cut and then it goes to a different take because apparently they recorded all these on a master tape and the one for that song got messed up. And then the last like minute of the song, John Lennon just kind of sounds far away and distant and like in another room or something. See, no, see to me, that kind of thing strikes me as like a, 
hey, we're making the White Album. We're not coming up with the cover. We're not coming up with anything about this besides the pile of songs that will exist on it. Cut in that other take. We're good. Like, I, I, there's something I love about that. Let's let's table your blues for now because I want to talk about it more when we get to the rock and roll circus. Oh, cool. um, while my guitar gently weeps, hate that song. Do not understand um, the the love for that song. I find it really repetitive and boring and just not interesting. And um, it's on it's on your it made it made your stripped down white album, which is what I'm calling our sort of curated selection. And so I this is this is all I'm gonna say. And this is. I'm just throwing out, I'm just passing out controversial opinions like Birdseed right now. George Harrison is graded on a curve. That's all I'm saying. And the people in his classroom who he's graded on the curve with are the best students in the world. That's just true. So <laughs> that, that is an extremely fair point. Um, uh, Rocky Raccoon, not that great of a song. Absolutely. Absolutely love Rocky Raccoon and I have for my whole life. Now somewhere in the black mining hills of Dakota there lived a young boy named Rocky Raccoon. And one day his woman ran off with another guy. God, I love Rocky Raccoon. I don't, I don't really know what to say. I just love it. This is an interesting, you know, it's hard not to contrast this album with Sgt. Pepper's. And, and maybe you could contrast it a little bit with Abbey Road and Let It Be and, and some of those things. But it, it, it does feel like a response or or just how I think about it with Sgt. Peppers. And Sgt. Peppers to me, for me in my life, was never an album that I, it had songs on it that I liked, but this is actually an album that I've spent a lot of time with in my life. And what that means is that uh, my opinion has changed on some of these songs. And so Rocky Raccoon is actually a song that I've just kind of grown tired of. And now Rocky Raccoon he fell back in his room Only to find Gideon's Bible When you talk about this thing as an album, um, did you know that it, like, or notice that it has no sound gaps between songs? It just goes song, 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 song. First time the Beatles did that. I don't know that I did notice that. Pretty cool. I love Rocky Raccoon, and, like, to me, that's an example of, like, it's I, I get it I, I totally get it I actually don't I wouldn't even see myself as the type of person to love Rocky Raccoon which to me means he executed something like very difficult whereas side two track four is Piggies possibly the shittiest song on this album it's quite possible have you seen the little piggies crawling in the dirt and for all the little piggies life is getting worse <laughs> I don't know if this is a controversial opinion is Helter Skelter is a great song and I have it on my uh my my stripped down white album playlist or whatever but do you think that that song could have a better mix to it I always felt like even though I love that song it feels like it should hit a little harder in places pull that baby into your uh reaper file and give us the remix we all need Okay, maybe I'll we'll put we'll post that on anybody but, who wants to hear that. I don't even know how to begin to do that. It's like I think that like take take 1968 and then fast forward to now, I could see feeling that way. But Helter Skelter is nuts at that time at that period in time. Like Helter Skelter is I, I get that it's like I think it could probably like punch harder in in certain ways sonically, like with a with a mix, but I think 
that nobody hearing it in 1968 is thinking that they're thinking, Whoa, dude, where are we? Like, this is not, this is not, I want to hold your hand or even, uh, yeah, it's, I'm going to go murder a bunch of people. (laughs) He's not in control of that. Um, okay. That's everything else that I have to say about the not so good songs on this album are, is not controversial at all. I think. first six or so albums Kanye West albums I absolutely love them like I I Uh, totally really 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 love them and the end period of that right before he becomes the Kanye West we know now is is uh my beautiful dark twisted fantasy just an elaborate elaborate masterpiece really like with ton a ton of production a ton of um collaboration all of that and with everyone from like Boney Vare to a bunch of fellow rappers and everything. Very, very, very good. Wait, is that how you say it? Yeah, sorry. I <laughs> <laughs> haven't been saying it wrong this whole time. How do you pronounce this, the carbonated, like slightly barely flavored soda? Like that is two words that are in French. Oh, La Croix? La Croix. Okay, you say that. I, I, say I got La Croix. I, yeah, I got that one. You say that in the fancy way. Okay, that's good. Either way, it's 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 amazing. And that album had four different album covers that were like like variations on the same art in all these places. It was a like a, a thematic triumph. Like it kind of has chapters almost to the to the um kind of moods of the of that play out throughout the record. It's so good and and just like clearly a work of like artistic genius. And then his next album a couple of years later is Yeezus, which is most of these songs don't even have like four four time signature drum beats to rap over which is kind of like the the heartbeat of that music genre you know and he's and it's a lot of it sounds rough and ugly and then it it kind of flips on a dime in places it's just very very like disorienting and its cover is a clear plastic cd case with a red piece of tape literally no artwork and uh, like this week, like thinking about it, that artist who I, like a lot of people will probably like, sh- like scoff at this, but sorry, like hip hop and other types of music have replaced rock and roll as like the dominant cultural, like oh, yeah. uh, art form. And Kanye West was essentially the Beatles at, in, in the late, in the mid late two thousands. And this is his like Sgt. Pepper's to White album turn. Like it's not the the difference is he he does only put ten songs on it, and it's in addition to being kind of like sparse and messy and and uncomfortable and and all of that stuff. It's also short, so that that's a big difference between that and the White album. I don't know. It was it was a thing that struck me that like the more I think about it, the more true it becomes. I spent a lot of time thinking about specifically for whatever reason, specifically John Lennon. And thinking about Bob Dylan and thinking about how, to me, this album has the very similar sort. It's coming from a similar place of where Dylan was coming from in the mid 60s of this attitude of don't put me in this straitjacket. Like, yes, I created this artwork in this world and I don't need to be confined by your expectations. But I guess my point would be Dylan's response to that was to put out Highway 61 Revisited or, 
you know, bring it all back home again to go electric, that impulse in Bob Dylan, at least, led to some of the greatest work of his artistic career. And so I guess my point being is that I, I can empathize and thinking about that from like Dylan's perspective and how he's so well-spoken on that made me empathize more with John specifically for whatever reason, but also the rest of the Beatles of this sort of like success and fame and, and artistic success becoming a straitjacket and people are like, just, just do Sergeant Peppers again. But I guess my point being is that it, I, maybe maybe it's a lucky fluke for Dylan, but like you can make a masterpiece. You don't have to make something that um, is in, incredibly flawed. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, Highway 60 Run Revisited is is it does that like, hey, I'm doing something different than what you expect of me, but also says it's also just kind of amazing across the board. Whereas there's no denying this is flawed. Any any beetle would tell you i'm pretty sure each beetle would tell you this thing is uh as as much as it matters in terms of what it is it's a it's a flawed document well and don't let me second guess the. i mean if this is really what they wanted like but i almost wonder the I don't know, the the beauty of that sort of dylan scenario that i just described is he went out there and he suffered the slings and arrows of that decision and he really stood in the face of people in front of audiences and their vitriol of his sort of decision and said, no, this is who I am. This is what I'm doing. Deal with it. And I wonder if this album or this period would have been different for the Beatles if they would have had to do that. But that's that's my complaint about this album. I, I don't begrudge them for taking whatever artistic direction they want to go in. That's fine. But there's something very blasé about it. And there's a difference between saying, this is what I want to do. I don't care what you think. And just, I don't care. It feels like that at times they, this is some of the stuff on here feels like them saying, I don't care. Apparently some of it definitely is that I think it, I, I read it that way. Or it's like, we matter so much that we don't care what you think. Like mm-hmm. we're doing it anyway. And, but apparently like some of the desire to strip back, I mean, there's like the, the, going away to India thing is like, I think you can't really underestimate that because it's like the band is huge and they go away to this place and they literally write a lot of the music there. And there's this, I read that like some of that is a response to like what Bob Dylan has done and what like the birds are doing and stuff like that. And it's like, let's, we don't need to make this big grandiose thing. Let's like make something down to the bones. But the, the weird thing i'm not going to say the problem like i'm, is, I'm it, this is i mean we keep saying that but it does feel like a big grandiose thing. i'm here i'm here for that that's that's what i mean like it makes zero attempt to have any kind of theme or 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 any like binding feeling about it right the thing is though really if you're going to say oh we went to india we wrote these songs all we had was an acoustic guitar um we want we were inspired by Bob Dylan of the birds and these these more um, kind of stripped back people. The only person who came back and stayed true to that initial vision is Paul McCartney. Everyone else took it and like they still have some of this like weird dancey circusy bungalow bill stuff and obla di obla da and I guess that's McCartney. But yeah, I was gonna it, say probably more George Harrison is the one who really interned some of that stuff. Well, like I mean, you have you have Harrison doing some of that stuff and even McCartney, all of them, but then. 
McCartney has all these little acoustic ballads, but then Lennon has basically the sort of noise rock punk songs that are just like, that is all like happiness is a warm gun and helter skelter intend to be. They intend to be loud distorted noises. But the thing is, all right, to wind to wind down this album, I will say my favorite. There's no song, winding it down. My favorite, my favorite song on this album is "Happiness Is a Warm Gun." Like what it does, it's like a little meandering, fucked up little journey. And then when it releases, like after the Mother Superior jumped the gun thing a few times. I need a fix because I'm gone down. Mother Superior jumped the gun. Mother Superior jumped the gun. Busts open to this happiness is a warm gun part that sounds like like Angel Baby from like the 50s or something. It is the coolest song to me. I'm obsessed with that song and, and I love that song in the way that's like the kind of song that like I can't even comprehend how you write it, which to me is the best. I love how it's just like each part is just bam, 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 over and done. Even the happiness is a warm gun part that you're talking about. They only really like sing it twice. They sing it and then John does his little like R&B breakdown. They sing it again, song over. Yeah. And side one is done and flip your record and you got Martha, my, Martha, my dear waiting for you. on the Oh, yeah. Side, so. Fuck. Dude, <laughs> Martha, my dear is just like the sound of like crapping your pants in an old folks home. <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. Um, all right. So now that we've talked about these uh, beautiful boys from Liverpool who know how to put 30 songs into their albums, let's switch over to these these uh, posh bastards from London who can muster a mere 10. I think Sympathy for the Devil might be the greatest rock and roll song of all time. God damn it. That's the best possible response you could can have to that. I enjoy this album. I really like it. I think it's a great album. I don't know. It's one of my favorite Rolling Stones album. Like it's super solid. It's it's like a super solid album. That's it's really good from start to finish. But just it, it, I would probably put Sympathy for the Devil and Jumping Jack Flash, which is not on this album, but it did come out in 68. I would probably put those in like the top five like rock and roll songs, like both of them. And they came out in in the same year. I think Jumpin' Jack Flash is a very good song, but in I put it in the uh, it lands for me in the like satisfaction camp, which I, I think you I, it's clear to me you love that song a lot more. Um, I personally think that the defining Jumping Jack Flash is the Whoopi Goldberg movie, but <laughs> <laughs> sympathy sympathy for the devil, unimpeachable. So if if anyone is is curious, there is a Jean-Luc Godard movie called One Plus One that um, is somehow horrendously an hour and a half long, uh, but there of that hour and a half, there's 20 to 30 minutes of footage of the Rolling Stones in the studio recording and, and writing the song Sympathy for the Devil from the beginning of Keith just strumming it on guitar and Mick kind of humming out the vocal lines to the full on conga woo woos, everything. And it is just, mm, it is so amazing to watch. And it's just like a masterclass in songwriting and producing and creativity. And so if you, if you can get your hands on it, uh, it used to be on the internet and on YouTube and it's kind of hard to find now, 
Um, but I'm including that in my package of, of Rolling Stones things that came out in 1968 because to be able to get a glimpse of these guys in the studio and and see Charlie Watts playing around with different drum beats and and seeing like Keith saying, oh, okay, I'll play, I'm going to play this bass part instead of this guitar or whatever. Um, it's so cool. Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a man of will and taste. Been around for a long, long year. The perspective that he's that Nick is singing from the whole time. Pleased to meet you. Won't you guess my name? Like Jesus Christ, dude, that's so cool. That's right. It's, so here, here's the thing I'm curious about though. Like to me, sympathy for the devil sounds like the kind of thing that they found. And like I haven't seen that that um, film you're talking about, but like, like you got to know like hey, we got something really good here. Like we got something that we're going to blow out into six minutes and like really, really make happen. But what's interesting is like this album is very clearly, it's it's the kind of the way it's described, like first sentence of like anything written about it or second sentence is like, this is the Rolling Stones returning to the more kind of blues and rock and and stuff they were doing before. But it's like, Okay, so Satanic Majesty's request was prior to that, which is less nutty than people might like say, but is very mm-hmm. much like presented as this kind of like it's mm-hmm. of this sort of psychedelic moment. But like uh, that was called Satanic Majesty's request, and this is called Sympathy for the Devil, and it's got a bunch of like weird little conga drums and is six minutes long, and he's like kind of shouting and stuff, and like this isn't like the return to rock. The album is, the album is a return to sort of uh-huh. blues and rock and everything. But like, it's interesting that like track one side a is sympathy for the devil. And it's really, that's a weird, a weird, totally unique individual song. There's no song like sympathy for the devil. Yeah. That's, I don't think the album suffers from having sympathy for the devil. I don't know. I take your point. It gains, it gains from it. Honestly, it's just, it makes sense that people reacted weirdly to satanic majesty's request because like you, you could in the moment think like, Oh my God, this is what the like satisfaction guys are going to do now. This isn't what I want. <laughs> satisfaction guys. You know, <laughs> yeah, like another way of describing this album is, you know, there's, there's a sort of theory of um, horror movie making that, I don't know if you're familiar with this at all, but basically the idea is you have to scare the shit out of the audience at the beginning of the film, like right away. And then if you do that, then the audience will be kind of on edge and like find the rest of the film more scary, even if it it doesn't. And that's kind of this album where it hits you with sympathy for the devil on side A, and then it hits you a street fight man right off the bat. And the rest of the album is more mid-tempo, um, kind of bluesy stuff and because you're, you're already keyed up from those songs you're, you're more willing to follow those through i think Hundred percent agree with that. I would want no other song to be track one than "Sympathy for the Devil," and the same is true about "Street Fighting Man" on side two. I mean, I love it. I I, I love the album. I would I would play it any time and listen to it any time. I just honestly don't know how much there is to say about it because it just it's all kind of right there up front. 
you know it's not there's no pretension there's no put-ons although salt of the earth is kind of pretentious or i don't it's, know if pretentious is the right word but it's not pretentious but it's uh it's full I, of shit. I, I i see what you're saying if you're gonna put it on this album you're they've put it in the perfect spot at last that's true it, um it bundles it up for me what is true as you say that it's like you can talk about like if we took the 10 songs on this album and the 30 songs on white album and said, all right, we're going to try and pick the 10 worst songs in this big bundle. Mm. They're probably all 10 of them are Beatles songs. That's true. But if you're going to pick the 10 best songs, there's going to be a good amount of Beatles songs in that. So I'm hitting record, but we, we have magical powers of editing. Unlike the Beatles. Oh, <laughs> coming in hot. Okay, I am here with Whitney Page, cultural critic from Orcas Island, and the lovely Margot Page is with us as well, who you might hear in the background. Uh, Whitney, I'm going to prompt you in the same way that we prompt all of our guests, Beatles versus Rolling Stones, 1968. Who you got? I pick da, 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 the Rolling Stones. All right, tell us why. Are you surprised? No. Okay. I'm not surprised at all. <laughs> well, this, uh, my larger argument is that the Beatles um, album is annoying and that there are some big, big wins on the album in terms of songs that stand out alone, but that overall they needed better editing and that there's enough material for like three albums, one of which you could just throw away. And then the Rolling Stones album is like a glorious story with a beautiful bang intro and then at the end it like has this wonderful ballad uh, we can get into the details yeah let's but, get into the, i want okay. you said that the white album the beatles album is annoying can you elaborate on that that's one of their better that's one of their better songs (laughs) and it got stuck in my head last night and it won't go away and even though i like that song and it's fun and it's upbeat it's still annoying and the birthday song as i'm gonna call it is the same well it's not called the birthday song. it's called birthday it's called birthday okay but I used to, my dad used to sing that to us when we were kids, and I just thought he like got that out of some weird cultural. And there it is, and it, he's he's got a better version than they oh. do. <laughs> it's just like okay, why are we singing Happy Birthday? I don't know. So those go together in this weird album way. There's all these pieces of that album where it's like I want someone to take us a, a set list and then cut it up and then and then put like with like. And then just burn a third of the album. And I wonder, like, why... Burn the master tapes so they we never hear them again. <laughs> Not that bad. I mean, if you're really, really, really into the Beatles and you, like, want as much Beatle content as possible, then, like, maybe you, maybe you go into the deep cuts. But I don't understand why they had to include it on that album. Why couldn't they... Were they arguing and, and someone wrote one song and was like... I have to have this song on that. It's this one's the best. And everyone else is like, that's exactly what, well, it's obvious because it's like, no, someone needed to come in and tell you that's not a good song. That song is annoying. What I'm gathering is that you are not a 
a Beatle fanatic super Well, that's fan. not super fair because I do like the Beatles and I appreciate the Beatles and I will listen to the Beatles willingly. But every time, so the larger context of the White Album for me too is that I kept getting this image that I was at a carnival and it was a really really scary carnival (laughs) and like every single song is a different ride or a different booth with a carny Mm -hmm. and some of the rides i'm like do i like this i think i like this ah i don't know if i like this this is too much it's too much but then some of them you're just like nope nope like i felt like the transitions in the first half of the album i really like this metaphor i mean i bet people would probably use that more for sergeant peppers since it has some of that kind of carnival-y imagery but would you also say some of the rides kind of start out pleasant but then it's like it's a small world and you're like this doesn't go anywhere and it's boring yes exactly and it's too long like julia that song is okay it's fine but it goes on for a verse too long they could have just cut it again an editor they needed a freaking editor and i think I think that the, like, Dear Prudence to me is, I associate that with Sgt. Pepper. I don't associate that Mm. with the White Album. And I, maybe that is wrong because it's one of the stronger songs, but it has that Strawberry Fields Forever that that movie that they did about... Across the Universe. Yes, Across the Universe. I just loathe that movie. It's so annoying to me. It's like they took all the most jangly hippie psychedelic and we're just like you know i don't know it was like it's like an inauthentic drug trip like they're trying to give people that never want to do drugs like squares a druggy experience and no you can't do that did you get a druggy experience from the rolling stones um that is not how i would frame my experience of that album to me the the image that was coming to mind was more of a western movie but a really good classic western movie maybe like set in ireland or something Mm -hmm. and it's because like i said it has an arc it starts with a bang with simply for the devil which everyone knows that song because it's a classic and it's amazing and then it follows a narrative almost that is really pleasant so a lot of the transitions you're you're getting you're getting a break hold on i want to i want to reference my notes here because i have a thought about the no expectations is the song that comes after simply for the devil and it's a nice break from the rock and roll of sympathy for the devil and then each time a new song comes up on that album you're like ready for it and it it has this graceful way of going from upbeat to more low-key to kind of and the word that comes up a lot in both these albums for me which I think is just a sign of the times is jangly Mm. jangly jangly Mm. jangly and the Beatles album is jangly in that carnival scary annoying way (laughs) and the Rolling Stones album is jangly in a really nice like spurs clacking, walking on the dirt. Mm. And when they have these campfire songs that the Beatles were trying to do, the Rolling Stones do it with this like casual coolness that the Beatles never accomplish in my mind. Like the Rolling Stones, when they're singing about something super kind of weird, which is this this woman who is like cat scratching up his back and and meowing while she's like having sex with him like it reminded me of sleepless in seattle when the boy's like 
you know, he's like, Tom Hanks is like, what do you know about sex? And the little boy's like, people are always screaming and scratching up each other's backs and stuff. <laughs> I was like, why is this woman just got these claws and she's biting him? And she's like, but at the same time, I can't get that song out of my head because it still has an undercurrent of sex appeal, which is just like what Mick Jagger can do versus the Beatles, which is warm gun is happiness or happiness is a warm gun, right? There's this one part where he talks about, obviously, her clit. And I'm like, it just feels like he's hitting you over the head with it. And when they try to do sexy, it just comes off as creepy to me. Mm. Whereas when the Rolling Stones try to do sexy, you, like, feel it. So what, what I'm hearing is that the Rolling Stones won for you because both of these albums have had songs that have been stuck in your head. Just one, the Rolling Stones ones you wanted to be there and the Beatles ones are Unwelcome Intruders. It, well, unwelcome Intruders, exactly. And I was thinking about how as artists you need to do what you're good at in a way or you'll, you will be known for the things that are authentically your strength. So when you're a writer, that means finding your voice. There's Margot, everyone. She has thoughts about it too. Mm -hmm. But when you have to find your voice, it's a really important part of the artistic process. And that's where a good editor comes in, whether you're an author or a songwriter or a poet or a painter. You have to edit your work. And that was what was really frustrating to me is that you're slothing through this album, the White Album, and there's these high points which you can't argue with are really beautiful, amazing pieces. What's the, well, what's the high points for you? The high points would be your blues. But then I was thinking about this with that one because I love that song. I love when you sing that song and play that song on the guitar. And I want to cover that song because it's a great song. But I don't like... Is John singing it? Yes. I don't like John singing that song. I want someone else to sing that song. He just doesn't... I've never thought of him as like a cool guy well if you ever see him play live in concert he stands super bow-legged <laughs> which i bring up on the podcast as much as i can because it's really funny to me to have a rock and roll uh megastar who's standing splayed leg at a microphone i just think when i think of mick jagger i just think of sticky fingers and i like want to unzip that zipper and when i think of john lennon i just like I think of John Lennon as a weird elfin, kind of sniveling, like, bad wizard in Harry Potter. <laughs> well, that's funny you should say that because this year, John Lennon and Yoko Ono also put out a solo album that the album cover was them naked on the cover of the album. So. Everyone knows that that album cover, right? No, it's a different... It's, it's not that one. Oh, not the not one of them one? embraced, like in each other's arms they're just standing naked full oh. frontal um and i'm guessing you would not have bought that album i don't find it sexy at all i find it really weird and like no i don't want to do it in the street no who does that so the the trivia behind that song is that paul mccartney wrote that song in india after he saw two monkeys having sex in the in the middle of the road okay well one. sing it to your girlfriend i don't want to hear it <laughs> okay well, what about okay you're, you said your blues what are your other high points Oh, let me think. Oh, also in Happiness is a Warm Gun, he had, it was so nonsensical in like the beginning, it just like jumps in and you're like, wait, why is, what, the lizard's doing what? Like it's so fast and just strange. And then he's like, mother superior. And I was like, why are all of these people in the 60s obsessed with nuns? 
you know? I don't know if they all went to Catholic school and they have this, like, weird, like, what's underneath the habit thing or something, but they always find a way to bring up nuns in their music, which I think is just not something that you see in music today. <laughs> no one is, no, like, no singing one... about Mother Superior. We don't get a lot of nun talk. No. Um, oh, Blackbird. How can I ignore Blackbird? It's obviously a beautiful lullaby, beautiful melody, beautiful song, a little overdone at this point because... Sure. We hear it all the time, but it's a beautiful song. Blackbird singing in the dead of night. Take these broken wings and learn to fly. And what else? Oh, God. The Buffalo Bill saga. We can't hear looks on this podcast. Oh, God. Um, my look is just eye-rolling because that's what exactly what I'm talking about. It's like, I don't know how much they knew of each other's work at the time, but there are a few examples on the Rolling Stones album of a really nice... We might have to pause it for a second. Okay. So on Parachute Woman, the harmonica comes in, and that feels like a really nice... Um, yeah, let's pause it for a second. Okay, so high points on the White Album. Rocky Raccoon, amazing song. It's a whole story in a song, and it's a great song. And then also, I I do like I Will. I think that's a really sweet song, and I think it's the kind of song that you sing to your children. And the Beatles are really good at lullabies. They're really good at sweet, mm. you well, know. that's not the Beatles, that's Paul McCartney. Well, Exactly. But you can tell when those songs come up. They're just, Mm -hmm. they feel gentle and and sweet and beautiful. And so that, I think, is a a great song to sing your beloved and learn on acoustic guitar. And it's just darling. I think that one's darling. Um, And then on, on Beggar's Banquet, High Points, besides, you know, Sympathy for the Devil, is I think Salt of the Earth is a great song, and I love that they place it at the end, and it has that outro that's kind of a lingering long outro because it really wraps up the album, and it's over, and you're all standing in the bar raising your mugs, and the concert's over, and it's great. And you're like, end cut, versus the White Album, which is just all over the place it never ends it just never ends and back in the day you couldn't just like skip through the bad songs that's true well this is probably then a good place for us to wrap up this interview thank whitney thank you for doing this my pleasure i've got a feeling a feeling deep inside one thing i absolutely love is the um beggar's banquet album cover with the with the toilet and the um, kind of like marker and graffiti on the wall and stuff like that. So so apparently at that time, because you also see the kind of white version that's like in like fancy cursive, which is kind of a funny little weird like side by side to the white album that like the Beatles have this like plain white record with their name just embossed and the Rolling Stones have this kind of like eggshell white mm-hmm. record with just their name on it. But the original one with like the toilet, like the messed up bathroom and everything that just looks so cool, especially for something from the sixties was like deemed in, deemed offensive because it was a toilet. <laughs> well, it was the sixties. 
That's insane. Yeah, the 60s. Like, what do you I have a hard time imagining that anyone in 19 anyone in the Rolling Stones in 1968 was coming in within 30 feet of a toilet like this. Yeah, that's true. It was apparently it was like the toilet of a car dealership, and they went in and Mick and Keith like tagged the wall and stuff. Like, oh, that's but like <laughs> and ja- Jagger says because because it's not even the whole toilet, it's like the top half of the toilet, and then all the stuff on the wall that's like what no paper and bob dylan's dream like pointing down the drain hole and stuff like that which is that is like all that stuff is good and there's a jagger quote that says i mean we didn't we haven't shown the whole lavatory that would have been rude we've only shown the top half <laughs> <laughs> that's that's fair enough it definitely reminds me of that scene in train spotting not my favorite scene um i have a question for you about beggar's banquet so Obviously, Street Fighting Man, you know, G7. Um, well, I don't think we've talked about this song enough, which is just classic. It just gets you going, gets you up out of your seat. I think we could agree this is like clearly the second best song on this album, although some people might like it more than Sympathy for the Devil. Would you also say that No Expectations is the third best song if after those two? I I you know you know my like sort of connection to a, a good little hook, and I have this weird love for Dear Doctor, which I don't think people are supposed to love as much as I do, but I do. Oh help me, please, doctor. I'm damaged. There's a pain where there once was a heart. But no expectations, no expectations also is up there though. So take me to the airport and put me on a plane. I've got I was gonna ask you what the third best song on this album was, and then I just figured that it was clearly no expectations, but now that you've thrown in Dear Doctor. What's your favorite song that's not those four songs? Uh, I love Fact. Well, you, you're right in say, in describing this album as a thing that I think is a little bit deliberately middling in certain ways. But I love Jigsaw Puzzle and I love Factory Girl. Yeah, I was going to um, say Factory Girl. I mean, it's almost in some ways the polar opposite of the White Album in that the whole is more than the sum of its parts. And 100%. the White Album is the opposite, the sum of its parts. I mean, unless you're just interested in it from an intellectual exercise, which is fun and never ending, but the White Album as a whole is not more than the sum of its parts. Can I talk yeah. about the rock and roll circus now? Tell us. Yeah, I wanna, I'm want i excited to hear about it. Okay, so I have lots of fun factoids about this. I don't know why I'm so weirdly obsessed with it. I just really enjoy it. The Rolling Stones got the idea that they were going to make a TV special um, that was going to be a bunch of rock and roll bands playing together in um, with the, the, the overarching idea being that it was going to be a circus 
which we talked about this last week. For whatever reason, English people in the 19, the late 60s, like really loved their circuses and they wrote <laughs> songs with like circus rhythms and blah, blah, blah. And so they did this and they had performances. Um, the other bands that played with them were Jethro Tull, The Who, Taj Mahal, Marianne Faithful, um, and a band called The Dirty Mac, which was one of the first ever super groups that featured one John Lennon of, um, you might've heard the Beatles and Eric Clapton, Keith Richards playing bass and Mitch Mitchell playing drums, Mitch Mitchell of the Jimi Hendrix experience. And so um, this special was shot and filmed with all of these musicians and it was never aired. And the, the urban legend or the supposed reason why is that the rolling, basically they had set out this filming schedule where they're going to film this all in one day. It wasn't live, but they filmed it. And because they had so many different acts, it took them so long to set up all of the different equipments and shots and things between the bands that by the time the Rolling Stones came on, who was the, the headlining act, it was like four in the morning and the audience, which had been so revved up for this whole show, was just like totally zonked. The Rolling Stones energy is like non-existent because it's four in the morning and they have been doing like they, they're not just like the, the headlining act, but they're also like doing little sketches in between things and like introducing bands and blah, blah, blah. And uh, Keith play, plays with John Lennon. And so apparently they felt like the who really upstaged them even though the who only played one song and so uh this is available online now to go watch highly recommend it there's also the the recording of the performances is on spotify that you can go listen to um but as i was doing some research on this uh i found i found out some very interesting things one of the things was that jethro toll plays and the guitarist for Jethro Tull in this performance is Tony Iommi of Black Sabbath playing with Jethro Tull, which just completely blew my mind. And apparently when Jethro Tull plays on the rock and roll circus, they have a, a backing track that it's not them actually live playing their instruments because Tony Iommi didn't know the songs yet because he'd only been in Jethro Tull for like two weeks. Hell yeah. Um, another one of my fun facts about this is that the group Taj Mahal, have you ever heard of Taj Mahal? Yep. I I was not familiar with them at all until I watched this. Do you know who the guitar player is for Taj Mahal? Besides the per person Taj Mahal? I'm picturing a, a dude with long hair parted in the middle that I met in my dorm room in college who played me a Taj Mahal song. And that's where I learned who Taj Mahal was. But <laughs> tell me, tell me who it actually the is. The guitar player was Jesse Ed Davis, who played the guitar solo on... No Doctor My Eyes. Yes, that's right. Uh, <laughs> Damn. If you remember back from the After the Deluge podcast as we were arguing uh, about whether David Lindley was playing the guitar solo on that, come to find out it was Jesse Ed Davis who played that guitar solo, who was also in the Ro Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus. Dang, that is awesome. And he plays a nice guitar solo on there, but you, yeah. He's awesome. I A, um, a Native American uh, guitarist, and so he's one of the the few uh, noteworthy Native American guitarists from this time period. Um, 
And then my other thing is that I just love the performance of John Lennon in that group with Eric Clapton and they play a performance of your blues, which is better than that. The, the white album version of it to me, I got to say that the, a lot of the, the shots of it are actually of just like close-up shots of Eric Clapton shredding. So <laughs> there's, not, there's not a ton of stuff. And Yoko Ono is also there for this super group, but in the version I watched, she, um, was was kept strategically out of camera <laughs> camera uh angle <laughs> and also the 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 song that the who perform which is a quick one while they're away really does kick total ass and i if i was the rolling stones i probably after seeing this who performance probably been like cancel the show it wasn't it wasn't a song about pinball uh i mean you could probably interpret it about <laughs> as being about pinball I'm surprised so awesome. we haven't gotten so, any fan mail about Justin's who hate. <laughs> I took a, I was, I used to work as a bellhop and I would drive pilots to the airport sometimes. And I was like in this, this is exactly this period when I was getting into all this music and some, some pilot, like to, I ended up in this long conversation about music that was largely really, really, really good. And then, but, but he gave me this insanely emphatic suggestion about the who and I went and I literally on the way home from work bought the record and was just like, you know, the who is four people and the who is good. Like the who, like Bob O'Reilly, there are, there are who songs I really love, but I was so, the guy really just set me up for failure with it. That's the problem. I'm so and in I, lockstep with you on this. I've made it, I've made it my thing to just like cast off the who as I go. And yeah, you know, send, they have some if, great tunes, but as a whole, not for me. Um, so yeah send that mail you know like maybe you can like pick up where that that pilot left off and uh (laughs) put be the final puzzle pieces for me to yeah sometimes you honestly really do need someone to give you some context or like when you meet someone who really 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 loves something like a piece of music it makes you reconsider it sometimes i i always hated sonic youth and and like just kind of resisted the them like and and even as i tried like i just still was like oh whatever man like i don't like it struck me as the kind of thing people were liking to feel cool and then i had a friend who liked sonic youth it was like make me like a six song playlist and they sent that six song playlist i listened to it constantly for a week and absolutely loved it like it was i thought you were gonna was, pull a mitch hegberg right there she's like i used to hate sonic youth i still do but i used to too <laughs> Uh, no, this is a case. This was a success story. Before, real quick, before we, you know, what else is a success story? This podcast episode. I just even even with way less effort to me, uh, White Album is so much more interesting than Sergeant Pepper's. It just is. Oh, uh, I thought you were gonna say than Baker's Banquet. Yeah, I agree. I like White Album. I I, I mean, I it, I do this every episode. I know I've been like railing on this album and and that's why this week has been so weird to me as I've, I've again going back to this breakup feeling that this band in, in so many ways means so much to me just like it means so much to so many people and when when this album is on it's just as fucking as good as anything yeah i think you can't talk about this album without talking mm. about the fact that when oh, yes, they start I can. when they when they go in to start recording white album Yoko Ono is there from the start. So all those sort of like 
broad strokes conversations you hear from people say like about how Yoko Ono broke up the Beatles, which is obviously way over simplistic and everything like that. This is, this is that, this is that moment. This is that record. You can mm-hmm. hear the band fracturing apparently later on the rest of the like wives and girlfriends are, are in the studio space too. But prior to this point, the Beatles created music in a vacuum and Lennon and Yoko Ono were, were where that changed and not only to the point of like her being around, but also she's on the songs. Also, he starts to make solo music with her. Like this is a, I, I will say like, quite honestly, I, I'm, I'm not gonna read much. I'm just gonna listen to that music. And I'm kind of excited to like assess Yoko Ono like with a clean slate and just like try to consume what they do and, and form my opinion about the John Lennon, Yoko Ono stuff, but there's no doubt that it it plays a role in what happens on this album and the fact I th- that the band I is, think, th- okay, hold on. The band is, in, the band I is think gonna it be is done in, in two I years. think it is in doubt. Well, to a degree. And I will say that in over the years, I have never shied away from like throwing, like casting a blase, like, you know, blame game on Yoko Ono or like jokingly being like, you're, you're ruining the band, Yoko, or whatever. My impression, as I have like over the years of of listening to Beatles stuff and people talk about Beatles and where I'm at with it right now is my impression is that the Beatles, like the actual members of the Beatles are on record at this point as saying the tension in the band that Yoko being the root of the tension in the band is overstated. And that frankly, they had a lot more to do with money and creative control than they did with Yoko being in the studio. And that's something that people have latched onto. And maybe um, it has caused, uh, it'll be interesting when that um, Get Back uh, yeah. documentary comes out. Cause obviously there's a lot of footage of them in the studio, but I, 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 as someone who for a long time was like, yeah, of course, like Yoko Ono broke up the Beatles, like White Album, she's in the studio and everyone's like mad all the time. Cause Yoko Ono is there. I, I feel like over the years, stuff I've read has led me to believe, I don't know if people are just playing nice or whatever, but that, that, that has been maybe dispelled a little bit. You can see, you could see how she would be the perfect person to be like this Asian woman who makes really weird sounding music ruined my favorite thing. It's a very convenient, easy thing for Well, it's so sexist too, because it's like, if John didn't want her there, she wouldn't be there. So exactly. how are you going to blame her and, and not he goes, John? And he goes on to make all this music with her. And like, yeah, he, John Lennon was, John Lennon is barely being contained on this album anyways. You know, like he, John Lennon's going to go whatever direction John Lennon wants to go in. And that applies to music and everything else he's doing. And Yeah. I, and I think I, that plays in again to that feeling of like, don't tell me how to make art. Don't shackle me to the Beatles. Don't shackle me to pop music. And unfortunately for him, in my opinion, most of the stuff that came out of that uh, rebellion was 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 uh, dilettante-ish garbage. I was Jeez. like, I loved hearing you hang on that. Hang on. I was to really find the words you wanted. I, I that's I the really thing. Yeah, that word. that's true. Like, so yeah, you should, a person should do what they want to do, everything, all that. But like we're about to enter into a period where the Rolling Stones are making like possibly the best albums of their whole entire career while the Beatles are individually making solo albums. And 
the Rolling Stones albums are better, and the Beatles solo albums are not as good as the best Beatles albums. I'm so tired. I haven't slept a wink. I'm so tired. My mind is on the blink. Even though I made, I just said that about Sympathy for the Devil, which I truly do believe it might be the greatest rock and roll song of all time. Um, I feel like I can just cancel that out with Hey Jude. Like, that that's that's right there in the conversation too and revolution so you get both of those songs this year plus 10 to maybe even 15 just solid b to a minus to a songs it's true yeah the beatles coming through the back door with these like singles like make it not make it unfair um the beatles take anything anything they do which hey jude could be like oh yeah that's like a normal nice pleasant beatles song there's always something that makes it extra kind of stand out and memorable. And I think that's why, like, when we say that about the White Album, with all of its, like, great parts and flaws, it just jumps off the page more than than Beggar's Banquet does. And that's what's hard. Yeah, that's what's hard about it, is the Beggar's Banquet is just wall-to-wall, like, these solid blues tunes. But, you know, you're going to put a line from parachute woman up against the just the na na na's from hey jude that you can walk to any bar in america and like instantly sing with like 15 other strangers if it comes on the jukebox like you can't argue with that kind of power yeah you can't i will say a line that jumped out of me the line on um street fighting man this is just as far as rock and roll lyrics go coming out of mick jagger the line what can a poor boy do except for singing a rock and roll band it just like gets to the essence of like why they fucking kick ass. They do, but it does, but that this does get to the essence of the Rolling Stones and all of their sort of complicatedness. Because when I listen to that song, I hear a bunch of pampered rock stars singing about fighting in the streets. Those guys weren't going in the streets anymore. Maybe if it was like 1965 or 66, but this is 68. They're like world famous. Like they're not street fighting men. He's he's looking back at his younger days. Yeah, I mean, I guess so. But I just that that is that is the Rolling Stones where there's there's always they they have the edge. They always have had that that sort of cutting over the Beatles and and that sort of toughness and and scariness. But there's always a little bit of a pose there too. I would actually say that this year is probably the first time the Beatles are not like the 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 prudish perfectionists you know like they are all the way up to this point and so they're they're not as like sort of badass feeling as the rolling stones are ever going to be but they're this is the beatles kind of like just kind of going which i i like to hear it well in in the category of like things that maybe everyone else knows about the beatles and i i didn't until this week is that apparently the maharishi is sexy sadie yeah, I didn't. I like that it. song is about the Maharishi. And also Savory Truffle is about Eric Clapton's chocolate addiction. Okay. Ugh. With something we have not talked about, I know we're like we're winding this down and that and that's great. It's time to wind it down. There's something that we have not talked about that we absolutely must talk about. Whoopi Black. Goldberg. Whoopi, Whoopi Goldberg. Goldberg. <laughs> <laughs> the greatness of Whoopi Goldberg. Yeah, Whoopi Goldberg's amazing performance in Jumping Jack Flash. <laughs> okay and go ahead amazing performance and everything uh blackbird oh yeah yeah that's we did true not was that talk about it at all and that is 
maybe maybe my favorite Beatles song are just you ever try to try to play Blackbird on an acoustic guitar? It's a real pain in the ass. I got one right here. <laughs> Can you do it? I can't do it. Wait, hold on. Uh, can you tell I've been practicing this all week? <laughs> no, but that was good. You're like, it's it's it is fucking hard to play. Something like that. This is all stuff you don't have to be on the podcast. But I, my acoustic guitar is sitting here, so I couldn't couldn't help myself. I like it. I've I've been around people playing Blackbird, and it just it goes. The idea that person known as the bassist in a band is playing and singing that at the same time just like really you're definitely right that white album they never they don't give you one clean of the four sides they don't give you one clean great one it's like because because i would almost like that part with blackbird and rocky raccoon as you know that's like my jam i love julia but they hit you with stuff that everywhere there's lots of piggies living piggy lives all right so we are winding down 1968 what do we got in 1969 so in 1969 we have the release of abbey road um which if i remember right was actually recorded after let it be even though let it be was re- uh, released in 1970 the uh, soundtrack to the movie yellow submarine and the Charles Manson murders, um, which are also in the Beatles column in 1969. Sorry, guys. And the Stones put out Let It Bleed, and they got someone killed at the Altamont Speedway. I think that's about sounds like, a, sounds like a real bloodbath. It was, it was a dark year in 1969. Yeah. Isn't isn't 69 like when like the that's like when the dream dies, the hippie dream? It was dies. an end of an era, Justin. Yeah, exactly. Well beautiful era where everything was so pure. It's the end of the era, but it's the the middle of this podcast, so it's not the end of it. Midway point. Wow. I think that's the midway point. I don't know. I don't I don't do math like that, but no need. That's why we're podcasting, baby. All right. I will see you in 1969. Can't always get what you want. Well, baby.